Hello, I'm Amber Athey, Washington editor of The Spectator, and I'm here to tell you about our fantastic new election offer. Go to spectator.us slash election offer and subscribe to get three months free access to The Spectator US website and our new app available on the Apple and Google Play stores. Make sure you're getting the very best coverage and commentary in the run-up to November 3rd. Find out more at spectator.us slash election offer. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast. This is an election year. Will Donald Trump be re-elected? What is going on with the Democrats? And has America gone even more crazy? We'll be discussing all of these things and more more than once a week, because we don't feel you have enough Americano in your life. I'm joined today by Amber Athey, who is The Spectator's Washington editor. And we're going to be asking, is Donald Trump feeling all right? Now, Amber, Trump has just tweeted that he's feeling great, in caps. We've heard a lot about how well he's feeling. He's back at the White House. There was a sort of amazing theatre, CNN called it grotesque theatre last night as he was helicoptered back to the White House. I thought he looked a little bit peaky, to use, I think, a British word, as he stood on the balcony. But he does seem to be okay. Would, Would you say that's about right? I hope that's right. I agree that when he got to the top of the steps at the South Portico, he looked like he was struggling a little bit to catch his breath, which I suspect is probably normal after battling the virus. The main concern now and a concern that even his doctors have identified is that oftentimes people start to feel better with the coronavirus before they start to feel a lot worse. So they'll have a couple of days where they think they've recovered and they feel really great like the president says he does. And then all of a sudden they come down with really horrible symptoms and in some cases even have to be put on a ventilator. So, you know, in my mind, I don't think that the doctors would have allowed him to go back to the White House if they were really concerned that that was the case. And especially with Trump being a man who really loves the idea of optics, and I guess you would call it theater if you're CNN. And for him to have to go back to the White House after getting sick again would be much worse than if he stayed in an extra day or two to make sure he was in the clear and then went home. So I suspect that this is probably the real deal. It could be that he's amped up on steroids. I mean, we, we know that he's been taking dexamethasone. Could he have had a shot in the ass, as he said of Joe Biden? Uh, That's what I'm wondering, too, because these drugs can really kind of alter your mood. They can affect your perception of your own pain and your your own abilities. So I don't know what dosage he's receiving or what kind of side effects that he's been having. And the doctors have been reluctant to speak too much about the treatment he's receiving because of HIPAA uh, regulations. So it's hard to really know how much of this is a true recovery and how much is just he's hopped up on a lot of meds and obviously anyone would feel good with that type of treatment running through their veins. Let's talk about the media meltdown last night because, I mean, we've seen quite a few media meltdowns in the time of Trump, uh, the age of Trump that we're living in. But last night was pretty special, I thought. Kind of Jennifer Rubin at the Washington Post clearly had some kind of episode, various Big name journalists were sort of acting on talking as though Trump was, you know, spitting on old people or something. 
it's bizarre. They've really enacted these impossible to abide by standards for people in the White House. And if you were to apply these to anyone else, everyone would rightfully call them out as insane. The idea that the president, for example, has to wear a mask when he is approximately 30 feet from the closest reporter and up on the top of the South Portico stairs is just insane. I mean, no one would think that when you're standing outside and you're that far away from someone that there's a reasonable risk of infection. And then people were complaining about the fact that he went back to the White House at all, saying that he was going to infect his staff members. But you don't keep coronavirus patients in the hospital inevitably. At some point, you have to discharge them and allow them to quarantine at home. So the president is just following the same regulations and guidelines that every other person who's had this virus has abided by, with the exception of the fact that he received obviously much better care at Walter Reed because he is the president. I, I particularly enjoyed all the people saying, get Baron Trump out of there, uh, <laughs> as if they really did care about the president's son. I suppose the point that people got upset about is the fact that Secret Service agents have had to go with the president in enclosed spaces, not just to and from the hospital, uh, but also for this drive-by. And Amber, you took a bit of flack on Twitter for telling everyone to calm down about the drive-by. Are you standing your ground? A hundred percent. I stand by what I said, and here's why. The virus for people who are between the ages of 20 and 49, the survival rate is about 99.98%. So you have a 0.02% chance of being killed by this virus if you're relatively young. Now, the Secret Service, the rate of possible death would actually be even lower because these are some of the healthiest people in our society. I've covered the White House. I've seen them up close. I can tell you they are very fit, almost obnoxiously fit, because they always make me feel a little bit bad about myself. (laughs) And then further, when they were in this car with the president, when he was doing his so-called drive-by, which is a really odd term that they chose for that particular event. The <laughs> Secret Service <laughs> right. The Secret Service agents were wearing N95 masks, goggles as well as gowns. So they were in full PPE. There were doctors who were not related to the situation who said that the risk of that any of them getting the coronavirus from this was very very small. There was a doctor who served as the White House physician under Clinton and Bush who said the risk was very, very small. And yet everyone wanted to focus on this other doctor who was some kind of specialist at George Washington University who was tweeting out about how Trump was basically literally killing the Secret Service agents and then turned around and talked about how you can judge the president's health by how much he's tweeting. So the idea that he's an unbiased arbiter of safety when it comes to Trump is pretty ridiculous. But, I mean, the point being that Obviously, there's always a risk when you're in contact with someone who has coronavirus, but the risk in this situation was so minusculely small that the meltdown just really showed how hysterically everyone is treating this, and not because they're actually concerned about the president or the health of the people around him, but because they just want to say gotcha. Well, let's talk a bit about the doctors, because you wrote an excellent piece that went up last night entitled The Hypocritical Oath. You were talking there about that doctor who seems to have become a sort of, you know, the doctor of the resistance for telling people that um, Trump was endangering lives. But equally, there is this concern on the other side that with Dr. Connolly, the president's personal physician, 
and obviously his first job is to care about the president, he may have just been spinning the president's condition a little bit. He certainly got caught out a couple of times in the various press statements he made. Yeah, and it's a difficult situation for him, I imagine, because on one hand, you want to try to be transparent to the public. On the other hand, you don't want to disclose too much about the president's personal condition for national security reasons. And also because there is a situation, you know, with HIPAA regulations where you can only disclose as much as the president allows you to. So I think what we saw a spin was probably him trying to toe that line. I haven't seen very many indications that he's some type of partisan hack. And there are certainly partisan hacks that defend the president and his health on a regular basis. There's a doctor I mentioned in my piece, Dr. David Samadhi, for example, who's a Newsmax contributor, and he was tweeting the other day about the fact that he believes Trump's risk level should actually be in the 20 to 49 age level, even though the president is 74 and aggressively overweight, because he sees the president as being so strong and having such great stamina. Now, if a doctor tells me that, I immediately think that I cannot take them seriously and that they're just playing politics and not actually being honest with the American people. I didn't get that similar vibe from Dr. Connolly. This is the problem with America now is that there is no truth. There's only you know, the truth according to the Republican Party and the truth according to the Democratic Party. And at this point, we argue over not the conclusion, but actually the facts themselves. For example, when the president first put out one of his medical tests back in, I think it was his fir the first year of his term. That was when Dr. Ronnie Jackson was still at the helm. And he, of course, is now running for a Republican congressional seat in Texas. He, at the time, had put the president's weight at about two pounds below the line for obesity. And there was a lot of speculation as to whether or not he had arbitrarily lowered the president's weight from what was read on the scale to avoid classifying him as obese and instead classifying him as overweight. So now we're arguing about what the facts actually are in terms of politics and not, oh, here are the facts and then let's reach a conclusion based on what those are. Let, let's go back to the media because they play such an important role in this story. I was quite struck on Friday, watching MSNBC, watching CNN, that there was a sort of, not entirely, but that among quite a lot of the commentators, there was a, a warmth towards Trump that I hadn't really heard before. And I wonder whether they were sort of relieved in a way that they thought, finally, you know, he's going to be out for 15 days, this election's over. And that Trump's ridiculously melodramatic comeback last night the reason it angers them so deeply is because it sort of seems to suggest that his re-election hopes are not quite as extinguished as they seem to have been. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. The initial relief and then the subsequent disappointment was more about Trump's political chances rather than his actual health. And for the president especially, his message now is that you can't live your life in fear of this virus. You can't let it, quote, dominate you. That is so in line. The fact that he, as an, an overweight, rather elderly man, was able to defeat the virus pretty soundly, that is really well in line with the administration's overall tone on the coronavirus, which is that you have to take it seriously and you have to take some precautions to try to prevent the spread as much as possible, but not at the expense of the entire economy and not at the expense 
of people's lives and being able to experience joy and just have a sense of, of normalcy. And that's going to be the way that he runs into this election because Joe Biden has been trying to position himself as the return to normalcy candidate. And what he means when he says that is we're going to have a more professional tone coming out of the White House. We're not going to have Friday night news dumps. We're not going to have crazy tweets at three o'clock in the morning. But Trump is the return to normalcy candidate in the sense that he doesn't want to go into another economic shutdown. He wants to send students back to school. So Americans are going to have to decide which one of those versions of normal is more important to them. Speaking of crazy tweets, Trump again brought up the flu comparison this morning, which we think, or polls suggest, when he did that in March and April, that was quite harmful to him politically, because I think a lot of people don't think it's just like the flu. Do you think it's a mistake for him to uh, repeat that line again? Things are a little bit different now than they were in March and April. So I'm not sure what the polling says now, but my suspicion and based on how I've seen people acting in recent weeks is that they feel a lot less terrified of this virus and they probably do view it a little bit more like a flu, especially with talks of a vaccine coming out. They see this as maybe something that's a bit more inevitable and that they can take precautions to protect themselves from, but not something that they're going to change the entirety of their behavior for, not something that they're going to stay locked in their apartment all day for. Obviously, there are exceptions to that rule, and I do think a lot of the messaging for so many months has had a lot of people overly afraid of something that, at this point, it looks like has about a 0.2% death rate. So, I mean, we'll see. It's, it's hard to really say because I do think people are a little bit contradictory towards themselves in terms of this virus because they constantly talk about how everyone needs to wear masks and how they can only have a certain number of people if they go out to eat. But a lot of people also want to send their kids back to school and are really sick of being locked inside all day. So people are a little confused, I think, about what they really feel about coronavirus. Well, and a lot of us want to feel 20 years younger, too. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thanks, Amber. We'll end it there. But let's do a catch up soon.